that we're looking to move forward. We've hit kind of the end of purely brain-based views of, of human suffering, of pathology, of treatment. And we've hit the end uh, of psychological views. And so what's cool for me about uh, psychedelics and why we need it now is that we really have to design treatments that are fully biological, psychological, and sociological in their, in their core. And psychedelics for me represent that. And psychiatry has really you know, started to take notice. Welcome to the Mindspace Podcast. I'm Joe Flanders. Thanks for joining me. My guest today is Dr. Kyle Greenway. Kyle is a senior resident in psychiatry at McGill, and he runs a ketamine clinic at a local university hospital for patients suffering from depression. He has quite an unusual background for a psychiatrist, having spent a good chunk of his education studying physics and chemistry, and that comes across in the rigor and creativity of his thinking. So it's very interesting to talk to him. He's not very active online, and he hasn't published any books yet. Um, So it's actually a rare treat to get his insights on psychedelics and how they're transforming mental health. Our conversation covered how psychedelics differ from other psychiatric treatments and why they appear to be so effective. The role of psychotherapy in psychedelic treatments, the potential mechanisms in the therapeutic action of psychedelic treatments, the importance of integration therapy, and how ketamine-assisted psychotherapy actually works. The conversation was quite wide-ranging and fascinating, and I really enjoyed it, and hope you enjoy it as well. So without any further delay, here is my conversation with Dr. Kyle Greenway. Kyle, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Joe. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's, uh, it's a real pleasure. Um, I got to tell you, Kyle, I'm actually worried about this uh, interview. I'm worried. <laughs> I'm worried that it's kind of my job to keep it on the rails here because we have so much to talk about, and you're so knowledgeable. And in fact, I- I've seen you give lectures, and I don't often get a chance to talk to you. So I feel like this is simultaneously me picking your brain for my own sort of curiosity, and that it has to be entertaining for our listeners. So. I don't know if you have any words of wisdom before we get into it, but I, you know, I'm I'm feeling a little worried. I'm I'm optimistic. I think uh, <laughs> I've always enjoyed speaking with you, Joe, and I think there are many, many interesting things to chat about. All right, I agree. So let's get started with the maybe the easy one. Just tell us about like you, your background, and how you got into the work that you're doing right now. Okay. So yeah, I'm, uh, I'm currently uh, a senior resident at McGill in psychiatry, uh, and this is after mostly, for most of my life, really aiming myself towards a hard science career. And I did all this undergrad work involving everything from particle accelerators to like synthetic chemistry, and I thought that was really my path um, until basically I came across the world of psychedelics. And I, I don't know, I don't think there are that many real frontiers uh, in, in medicine and in a lot of science also. And I don't know, I was uh, very quickly sort of fascinated. I think when I saw the neuroimaging scans of a brain on LSD for the first time, which kind of are remarkably like tie-dye, <laughs> I think that was the moment that I decided uh, that my career would look a lot different. And that was years ago. Ended up um, ending, well, going to medical school, ending up in psychiatry at McGill. And as soon as I arrived, I was, I was trying to find a way to get involved. 
And uh, as you know, I, I ended up finding kind of a research program on ketamine that really suited my interest. It suited the, the current environment, the legal framework, uh, what's available, et cetera. Uh, and the goal is really to do high quality research and clinical work with psychedelics, hopefully at McGill uh, going forward. That's great. Uh, and I'm certainly very glad that our paths crossed here in Montreal. So let's get into what some people are calling the psychedelic renaissance. I'm not super sold on that phrase, but I can't think mm. of a better one for, you know, just everything that's going on in medicine in, in psychiatry and psychology, and even in sort of like the popular media and public imagination. Um, do you have a favorite phrase, by the way? I think I, I'm more confident that there was a dark ages <laughs> right. then I am confident that there is a renaissance. Okay. So what's your name for what's been happening in the last, let's say, 20 years in this space? Oh, wow. I think the words I often use are kind of a re-emergent paradigm. Okay. So can you just explain for us why all the excitement here? How do you locate what's happening with psychedelics in the history of like psychiatry and psychiatric treatments? Mm, I love this. I love this topic. So keep me on track here, because basically one could talk for hours, I think, about the history of psychiatry and how that really intersected with the development of our societies, of the presence of religion or not, of the presence of science or scientism, as in kind of bad science. And the way I would sum it up um, is basically that I think psychiatry really uh, fell into sort of this mind-body divide for quite a long time in different ways. And if we take it back to, you know, Freud, of course, that was one of the first times that we saw a real focus on the mind. And from that was psychoanalysis came to us, uh, many other developments. And a lot of that is very positive, but the pendulum swung way too far towards, I think, um, psychological explanations of things that are inherently, at least partly biological and partly societal. Um, you know, one can think of autism, one can think of schizophrenia, and even depressive illnesses, uh, that there's definitely something involving the body or the genes, we might say, or yeah, the dispositions. And so uh, that, that kind of, that time when psychoanalysis was king in, in psychiatry lasted until probably about the 50s, uh, maybe the 60s, when, you know, accidental basically discoveries of uh, imipramine, the first antidepressant, and then uh, chlorpromazine, the first antipsychotic, kind of radically pushed the pendulum towards the opposite side where, you know, much like we were looking to explain diabetes with, oh, there's a lack of insulin, we were looking to kind of explain depression with, oh, there's a lack of serotonin, or psychosis with, oh, there's a surplus of dopamine. And so, again, we see sort of a dogmatic, I think, overemphasis on the biological side in this case. Um, the psychedelic paradigm emerged, ironically, very, very much at the same time. And in fact, LSD, the incredible potency of LSD and the way it resembled uh, serotonin sort of really contributed to this idea that, yeah, serotonin might be crucial in some ways to mood. Um, unfortunately, what we saw from, from back then is, you know, I think the research wasn't as good as it could be. And, you know, by standards back then, it was okay. But um, these things are hard to work with, even in the most rigorous, carefully designed settings, and, and things got out of hand. And, you know, one can famously think of Timothy Leary talking about putting LSD in the drinking water as really a, a good example of the worst idea uh, one could have about psychedelics. And so, although there was a lot of really interesting stuff psychedelics were teaching us about how the mind and the body interact, you know, these concepts of set and setting, which I think are of universal importance, um, it really fell aside due to political issues, bad science, 
Uh, and psychiatry's desire to really frame itself as a biological specialty within medicine, no longer uh, psychoanalysis in private clinics. So what we saw kind of more recently, and I think this is one of those reasons that the neuroimaging studies of LSD I thought were so fascinating, because here with modern tools, with modern protocols, with real rigor, uh, we saw science demonstrate that in fact, these things are amazing. They are really powerful. And not only can they be extremely therapeutic, but they can teach us a lot about how the brain operates. And this is in contrast to other forms of kind of assisted therapy that, you know, there was carbon dioxide assisted therapy for a while. There was nitrous oxide assisted therapy, all sorts of wackiness. And those things fell by the wayside, I think appropriately so, but the psychedelics have reemerged because psychiatry is looking for, we're looking to move forward. We've hit kind of the end of purely brain-based views of, of human suffering, of pathology, of treatment. And we've hit the end uh, of psychology, purely psychological psychological views of, uh, of these things. And so what's cool for me about uh, psychedelics and why we need it now is that we really have to design treatments that are fully biological, psychological, and sociological in their, in their core. And psychedelics, for me, represent that. And psychiatry has really you know, started to take notice that this might be one avenue forward. I've heard you talk about the complexities around central nervous system drug development and the monoamine mm -hmm. hypothesis and how these things have really shaped how the, again, the psychedelic renaissance is playing out. Can you just speak to that? Yeah, I, uh, I think so. So I, I had some experience in the drug development world uh, during some time in, in chemistry. And I think it's important to know that pharmaceutical companies are rarely, if ever, specialized just in psychiatry. And often the models they apply to drug development look a lot like the same models we apply to, you know, creating a new antihypertensive. And that model is really fundamentally based on enzymes, screening for certain activities, testing it out in animals and working our way up to humans. This worked uh, quite well for antidepressants. Um, after we had the hypothesis that, you know, the monoamine hypothesis, that depression itself was due to a lack of, say, serotonin or whatnot. Um, and I'll just point out as an anecdote that, that the monoamine hypothesis is a great example of moving goalposts in that initially, oh, it was all serotonin. Suddenly we had molecules that played also on norepinephrine. And so we thought, okay, you know, serotonin and norepinephrine are important for mood. Later on, we added in dopamine. So, okay, maybe these three are the crucial things for mood. Suddenly, <laughs> later on, it evolved further until blocking dopamine, the opposite of boosting it was what was important for mood. And so that model, I think the idea kind of simplistically of replacing or replenishing the stores of some neurotransmitter as a cure for something in psychiatry uh, really has, has run its course. And so drug development companies, I think are exploring different models. And a lot of these are now uh, much more based on neuroscience and a lot more based on sort of psychology. Um, in the sense that we understand to a much greater degree than we ever did before that your alliance with your prescriber, the setting in which the drug is prescribed, uh, the meaning you attribute to changes in doses, these things all have a major impact on whether or not you'll respond to a specific treatment or not. And so with the, with the simplistic model kind of run its course, I think the psychedelics can be situated in a more, say, nuanced, a more intelligent explanation that, in fact, uh, from the outset, our drug design will probably have to incorporate the differences between a human and an enzyme or a human and a lab rat. 
And so um, not only does that, that course kind of run its, uh, well, not only did that, that train of thinking run its course, but it also has yielded numerous failures of antidepressants and other, you know, CNS drugs. In Alzheimer's, there are spectacular failures. Uh, the goals of reproducing the benefits of ketamine have really resulted in hundreds of millions of dollars of failures. And so we're seeing the CNS sector, I think, recognize that, uh, that there are financial you know, consequences of thinking simplistically. So just to um, provide a little context for people that don't know what the monoamine hypothesis is, that's really what the standard antidepressant, like the SSRI approach comes from, right? It's sort of, it's the framing is the sort of monoamine hypothesis. Mood problems, for example, are the result of low levels of some neurotransmitter like serotonin. Is that correct? A hundred percent. Yeah. And that's a uh... That's an important clarification because I think one of the errors of logic that plagued, you know, the development of new drugs was sort of saying like, look, uh, I can deplete an animal or even a human being of serotonin and produce symptoms of depression. Mm-hmm. Therefore, you know, replenishing serotonin must be the cure for depression. And that, right. that, that logic was kind of understandable given that drugs that really did enhance, uh, you know, the availability of serotonin seemed to improve the symptoms uh, associated with depression. But fundamentally, it's sort of like saying, you know, I have a headache because I have a Tylenol deficiency. (laughs) Right. So what do you say to people who hear this and who are taking antidepressants? Maybe it's working, maybe it's not. uh, And all of a sudden the science that it's based on is uh, not correct anymore. How do do, do you Mm. help people make sense of that? That's a great question. And I, I spent a lot of time talking to patients about this. Uh, and it's important not only because of the scientific aspects, but because the narrative uh, or the understanding you have of your treatment will influence its success. And so it's important to to develop a narrative, I think, that is at least scientifically coherent, but also is therapeutic. Mm-hmm. So what I would say is the good news is, you know, if you've responded to an antidepressant that changes your serotonin levels, that doesn't mean that your brain was fundamentally broken before. This is not like, you know, my pancreas doesn't work, therefore I need insulin. Um, the, the complicated bit is saying like, okay then, but how do they work? And again, we see a pendulum swing often in psychiatry. And for a while there was a big debate that perhaps all these molecules were just placebos. And that debate, I think, was necessary, but it did a disservice also to people who really did well with these treatments, you know, as if saying it's all in your head. And that is not the case. So the understanding that I would put forward, and this is sort of the cutting edge of research, is that probably changing your neurotransmitters in in a variety of different ways can improve your symptoms of depression because they change sort of how you approach the world. They They change how you think, how you feel. In some ways, I think you can make an argument that they soften the associations you previously had. So for example, if I tweak your neurotransmitters a little bit with a molecule I prescribe, um, suddenly your brain is in a fundamentally new environment. And much like if you travel, you might feel a little bit different. You know, it's almost as if you're traveling in your, in your regular life. And so you can have a little space and using that space, you can make change and you can feel better. And none of this meant that in the first place, you needed those changes to correct an inborn deficit. Well, that doesn't sound so bad. Why, why not just, just keep prescribing SSRIs and give people the experience that they're sort of traveling in their home environments? I mean, it's a great, it's a great question. And I do keep prescribing SSRIs. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I, I do believe in them uh, in the right setting and for the right person for the right amount of time. 
Um, I think the the big difference for me uh, in the psychedelic paradigm is that you see a lot of the same factors, but much more acute, much more dramatic. And so, you know, a slight change in your neurochemistry, and these are really relatively slight changes that you see with an antidepressant, that might give you a little bit of space, but it might also, how do I put it? It might not be enough space in the sense that if you have a very difficult environment, if you have a lot of trauma and stuff that you can't get access to, uh, if you have symptoms that are really getting in the way of engaging in psychotherapy or behavioral stuff that keeps you well, then it just might not be enough. Whereas the psychedelics, it's again, a very similar process, but much more acute. You will often, uh, during a heavy uh, psychedelic experience, encounter difficult things. You will encounter a radically different way of being for a little while. And that is enough to really, I think, overcome a lot of the inertia that's associated with depression. Uh, a lot of the, the kind of the walls that, that make you feel stuck in a certain way of being. So I think to me, they're actually a very fundamentally similar sort of uh, methodology or process, except that uh, the psychedelics can really make things kind of shake the snow globe a lot more and really bring, bring things to a much more, you know, rapid head. And again, like, like antidepressants, like psychedelics, that doesn't always mean fun. It doesn't always mean, you know, difficult, but it often means a little bit of both. Right. At the risk of going down a rabbit hole here, how would you locate microdosing, let's say of LSD or like a classic psychedelic in this discussion around lower versus higher levels of shaking up neurochemistry, so to speak? Mm. So you, you gave me permission to geek out, right? <laughs> yes, please. <laughs> so, you know, what's interesting about antidepressants, and this is one of those things that really caused a lot of head scratching, is that even though they rapidly change your neurochemistry, you don't typically see or feel the benefits for days or weeks or months even sometimes. How do we understand that? How is it possible that dramatically changing, well, not dramatically, but changing your neurochemistry in the moment still takes a while to have a benefit? And, you know, one of the arguments is that it's not actually the change. It's not the increased, uh, you know, serotonin available that allows for the benefits. It's sort of your brain recognizing that, okay, the world around me is a little bit different. I'm going to upregulate neuroplasticity. I'm going to kind of upregulate the, the, the inborn mechanisms for psychological flexibility. And that's not an immediate process, even if the serotonin change was immediate. So what's interesting about microdosing is it seems to kind of get you there uh, much quicker you know, in the same way that an SSRI makes more serotonin available, a microdose kind of activates serotonin receptors directly. And so the difference there is that it's not relying on this kind of complex upstream downstream regulation process for its benefits. It's kind of actively poking the button uh, responsible for the benefits in, in the moment. And so I, I, would, I would guess that it's kind of impossible to prove, but I would guess that the state that one experiences within like a, a well-dosed microdose it's probably similar to the way you would feel after two weeks or three weeks on an SSRI. Interesting. Okay, so let's talk about the pharmaceutical developments in psychedelics. So particularly, I want to get to the, the sort of uh, breakthrough status that mm. a number of new medications have achieved. Maybe you can tell us that story and what that actually means. Yeah, so the FDA's famous breakthrough status is uh, it's kind of a new designation. It's only existed for a few years where they said, look, we, it's become very onerous. It's become very long to approve new drugs. And in certain situations, when a new treatment 
uh, seems so much more you know beneficial than what's currently out there for something that has a real need. Um, we're going to kind of expedite the process of running the rigorous clinical trials to getting it approved, to getting it uh, available for people who need it. And so the FDA breakthrough status requires really significant kind of preliminary results, usually a clinical phase two studies that show, you know, again, dramatic efficacy above and beyond what is currently out there for whatever treatment. And so the very first uh, psychedelic breakthrough status went to uh, MAPS, the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, who showed that psychedelic uh, assisted psychotherapy uh, using MDMA for treating PTSD was much better than what's out there. And that's partly because what's out there for PTSD is not that great. Uh, and also it's, it's a little bit of political brilliance on the, on the part of MAPS because they really targeted a condition that affects veterans. And veterans have a lot of political sway in the United States. Veterans suffer huge levels of mental health issues. Uh, they are often covered by the Veterans Affairs uh, Organization, which receives government money. So it's a little bit like socialized health care. We can call it that. And so there's a lot of financial and political motivation to see better treatment of vets. And MDMA-assisted psychotherapy for PTSD tapped into that and won breakthrough status a few years ago. Um, the others are, well, actually, in fact, psilocybin-assisted psychotherapy has won it twice, once for kind of vanilla depression and once for treatment-resistant depression. And this is with uh, USONA, which is uh, more of a nonprofit uh, organization, and COMPASS, which is much more profit-heavy uh, investor-fueled uh, development. But their, their actual you know, uh, products, let's say, are quite similar. I want to talk for a second about why... And when we're talking about psychedelics and psychiatry, we're talking really about psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy. Um, and I think some of the threads are already in the, some of the things you've said already. But the idea here is that this is not just a medication that you take home, you know, take one in the morning uh, mm. and see how it goes for a few weeks. This is a treatment that combines talk therapy and a neurochemical mm. manipulation. Mm. Why is that? Why can't we just take a psychedelic and get on with our lives? Let me ask you, uh, can we take an antidepressant and get out of our lives? Yeah, so great question. And of course, I went to grad school, um, I guess, in the early 2000s and my undergrad in the late 90s. And the orthodoxy then was SSRIs can be really helpful, but yeah. and CBT could be really helpful, but the best combination uh, or the best treatment is if you get the two in combination. Mm -hmm. um, and so this was sort of like what I went into my psychotherapy practice with. I was lucky to get referrals from a GP, for example, that prescribed SSRIs and then referred uh, their patients to me. Mm -hmm. But more often than not, people were just doing psychotherapy because they didn't like the pharmaceutical approach mm. or they were just taking drugs and it wasn't working. And then they came to me for sort of like an alternative. Mm -hmm. um, so there's the empirical principle that the combination works best. Uh, it sort of makes sense intuitively. Uh, mm -hmm. Just this notion that sometimes getting an SR SSRI can give someone a boost, get them a little bit unstuck, mm -hmm. um, but then they might need some help with behavioral activation or cognitive restructuring to totally. sort of have those changes uh, endure and be sustainable. But yeah, so maybe it is the same thing, but there's, but there's something about... <laughs> Um, this wave of new treatments that like the medications are being approved to be done in the context of psychotherapy. It's not really optional anymore. Yeah. And that, and that's it. I think, and this does touch on what I was, uh, the argument I was trying to lay out that 
You know, basically, I, I think you're totally correct. The ideal treatment with currently available, you know, uh, well, the, the ideal current availability, oh my God, the ideal current treatment <laughs> that's available um, is essentially, you know, an antidepressant and psychotherapy. And the way I would, I would argue that is, again, the antidepressant might help with symptom reduction a little bit, but fundamentally it's kind of creating some space, creating some flexibility that you can then work with in psychotherapy. Um, the danger is if you take an antidepressant uh, without any sort of psychotherapy, I, I would suggest that if, if your environment is overall positive, you're likely to benefit. You're likely to become more sensitive to the, the positive factors in your environment because it's not just psychotherapy that keeps us well or makes us well. It's all of the, you know, the friends, the meaningful contacts, the purpose we have in our life. Uh, if you're a benefit of privilege in society, that certainly helps your mental health, um, et cetera. So the antidepressant, I think, works even in that case in combination with the, the psychological and the social, sociological factors around you. Um, with the psychedelics, it's, all of that is true, except to a much more kind of violent uh, or you know, dramatic extent. And so if you become much more sensitive to your environment, even if it's just brief, that can go very badly if your environment is not nice. <laughs> if you're in a music festival and you're having a bad time and it's raining and people are loud and you're suddenly much more sensitive to that, your brain is no longer successful in filtering out 99% of its sensory input, which we know it does, you can be totally overwhelmed. That can finish in uh, an ER visit. At the same time, that sort of lack of filtering is what makes the psychotherapy so much more effective uh, in theory when you are on a psychedelic. And so to take a psychedelic uh, outside of a context of psychotherapy you know, there's lots of ritual use. There's lots of recreational use that's done appropriately, and it could be beneficial in those settings. But uh, no FDA <laughs> approval would ever come to, to this treatment because for a certain portion of people in the wrong environments, you're just going to amplify all the difficult things in that environment. You could end up in disaster very quickly. You would learn very quickly this is a bad idea to give people LSD and send them on their way. Right. It's interesting because I, I feel like part of what's in the background of what you're saying is this sort of your sense of the mechanisms here. This is thing about like sensitivity to environment, creating space, this kind of stuff. What do we know right now about the mechanisms, both neurobiological and psychological, why these drugs are so effective? I don't know if you want to talk about like the entropic brain hypothesis or neuroplasticity or the default mode network or any of those, <laughs> if any of those feel relevant to you, but what's your, what are you betting on in terms of the the best theories here. Okay, my favorite, my favorite theory, and you know, this is mostly based on theoretical arguments and, and reading kind of diverse literature, um, is something I'll call state-dependent learning. So what we know is even in even in rats or mice, if you set them loose in a maze, you know, you get their performance. Um, you do it again uh, with them being administered anything anything ranging from a barbiturate to cannabis to cocaine, uh, you're going to see differences in performance. When you then do it again with them in a sober state, you'll see that they have learned a lot less from their non-sober learning experience. So, for example, if they did it on a barbiturate and you test them again without the barbiturate in the system, you find out, like, actually a reasonable, a reasonable explanation of what's going on is, okay, they just really didn't learn as much. The fascinating thing is, if you re-administer that barbiturate, in fact, they actually regain a lot of the performance you thought they lost. So those memories were not just faultily encoded or something like that. They were encoded in the context of what was going on in the brain. 
in that case, a drug, but the same is true of your environment. So if you study in a very particular environment, for example, with a particular smell, and then you go to a test and you don't have the access to that smell, you're going to have less access to those memories that were formed with that particular environment. This is called state-dependent learning, and this is a phenomenon, phenomenon we see all over uh, neuroscience and psychology. And so what I would say is one reason antidepressants will work again is because they change that state. So they kind of lessen all the learnings that you did about who you are, who the world is, how you should react, how you should feel. All that stuff is kind of lessened. And so um, with the psychedelic, again, we're talking about a radically different state. So you have completely disorganized, in a sense, access to your current environment and your past memories. Things are not so orderly as, okay, this state is associated with that uh, feeling, that memory, whatever. And so what we see in the brain, and this is, this is, there's many ways of describing it, and you mentioned a couple. The entropic brain hypothesis is essentially that, you know, describing that the brain has a lot less order to it, entropy being kind of the lack of order. So when there's a lot less order, you know, information is not being channeled along its old circuits. You know, it's not so clearly say, your brain's not able to, to clearly say, okay, this belongs in the auditory cortex. This belongs in the visual cortex. You see information kind of bleed through the different pathways. And this is one way you get hallucinations. If auditory information is kind of channeled into the visual cortex, well, suddenly you get a little bit of synesthesia as if you're, he you're seeing sound. And so if you do neuroimaging, you find that indeed there are connections being made between networks to a much greater extent than would normally be the case. And so that definitely involves more entropy in the brain. You can measure that in a variety of ways. Um, and the, you know, either the cause of that or a, a co-artifact of that is that this default mode network, the, the, the way your brain organizes itself kind of habitually, uh, which is maybe the closest thing in the brain we have so far uh, as a correlate to the ego, your sense of self, who you are, et cetera, um, that's disrupted. And so whether it's a disruption of this thing called the default mode network, uh, that you're the kind of the orchestra of the brain, uh, the orchestrator rather, whether it's a disruption of that that produces this greater entropy, um, or it's the reverse, or they're kind of parallel processes, is not so clear. But the psychedelic state absolutely is characterized by novel pathways being formed in your brain where information is traveling in different ways. And that again ties into this idea, this creates space for growth. Things are not, you're not just stuck in the same sort of ruts, the same sort of common pathways that you were before. New things can happen to a much greater extent. Okay, so help me out here with the state-dependent learning piece, because wouldn't that imply if we want to stay well, we should be, we should recreate some of the elements of a psychedelic experience in day-to-day -day life to be able to uh, continue to have access to the learning we did in that psychedelic state? Totally, totally. This is, and this is something very different about, I would say, this, this kind of second wave of psychedelic research, um, is that there's a lot more emphasis on integration. This process of, you know, reliving parts of your experience, talking it through, turning that into real practical change, re-accessing those, those experiences you had on your psychedelic state in your sober life, all that is absolutely critical to make sort of uh, these lasting benefits. Um, before, you know, there's a little more emphasis on, uh, oh, you have a powerful experience, your ego dissolves for a little while, and away you go. And as you say, Joe, without this process of sort of retrieving those insights, retrieving those positive feelings, uh, whatever it is, in your sober state, there's no way to really maintain access to it. And it will quickly just become a part of your brain that is 
kind of irrelevant for your day-to-day life. One of the things that I wonder about when I hear you talk about this like state-dependent learning thing and just your comments about how radically different a psychedelic experience is, is psychedelic a psychedelic experience just novel and different and therefore gets our attention and maybe stimulates some neuroplasticity? And could we not just get screwed up in some other ways, like go traveling to a foreign country or go to a, like on a roller coaster or something like just all kinds of weird stuff to change our state of mind and perhaps even our uh, sort of like neurochemical balance there. Why do we need a psychedelic for that? Mm, that's a great question. I think those are good examples. I think for sure traveling is a challenge for your brain. There's something very different about, uh, you know, different cultures, different sm- smells, different sights. And that will, in some ways, I think, act at a similar level. And you hear this from people. You hear people say all the time, you know, oh, my God, my trip to wherever changed my life. Uh, And I think that's not a coincidence that psychedelic experiences are often called trips. Now, the rest, the rest I'm less sure about. We do know exercise, for example, activates similar kind of processes. We don't know as far as I can tell about roller coasters. But roller coaster assisted psychotherapy does sound intriguing. <laughs> Let's put it on the list of potential projects. But <laughs> I, I, I generally do think that, you know, much like I'm, I'm basically a compatibilist, I think, in my views, much like I don't see psychedelics as totally a different kettle of fish from antidepressants. I don't think that they're the, the be all and end all. And I don't think they're totally different than traveling, engaging in psychotherapy, which for many people is a totally novel experience. Uh, meditating, which in some ways is totally weird compared to your daily life, etc. And I, I sort of always encourage people uh, when I talk about mental health is, you know, the most beautiful mindset one can take to one's mental health is curiosity. And this word explore or experiment with, I think is kind of the one thing I'm really sure is the right path to feeling well. Hmm. That's really interesting because it's one of the key I guess, mind states we try to cultivate in mindfulness meditation and something I'm constantly mm-hmm. trying to get my clients to open up to. Mm-hmm. And it kind of brings me to this question about the psychotherapy aspect of psychedelic assisted psychotherapy. What is your sense about how we should be as therapists approaching the integration work? Mm, it's fascinating. It's fascinating. Um, I, I think we have a lot of different views on this. And so I'm going to give my own. And, you know, I think it's important to mention that psychotherapy is in many ways about the therapist as well. You can't divorce the therapist from the, the dyad of the interaction. And so what works for me might not work for other people and vice versa. Um, from my point of view, you know, a good analogy would be to something like hypnosis. So hypnosis was very powerful, especially back in the day at helping people, you know, uh, deal with these unexplainable neurological symptoms by linking them, in fact, to some unconscious trauma that had been repressed and locked away. And what they found with hypnosis is that even if you kind of, you get to that big realization, the dramatic, uh, you know, uh, the dramatic uh, memory that really explains everything that's been going on, um, it doesn't lead to lasting change. This is really kind of why, in many ways, why hypnosis fell out of, uh, fell out of fashion a bit, or at least Freud was not satisfied with hypnosis. It's kind of what led him to go to psychoanalysis, where you slowly chip away at defenses. You get there to a way in a way that is not the therapist kind of telling the person, ha this is what's been going on. 
but rather the, the person sort of in, discovers it on their own more organically and more consistently methodically such that there is more links formed to their current life and the changes are more robust. So I think this is a very similar thing with integration work, which is the one thing I'm confident you should not do is, even if you think you're right, even if you're brilliant, is tell people, ah, this is what's going on. There's the punchline, away you go, you're cured. Um, even if there was kind of this one neat thing, one neat story that was repressed that explains everything going on in someone's life, if they don't arrive at it themselves, it's not really going to lead to much, I think. You know, insight is not enough. So I'll go ahead, Joe. Well, I was just going to say, I guess I'll cancel my, my registration for that hypnosis workshop. <laughs> I, don't get me wrong about hypnosis, and I'm not an expert in it. But I do think that uh, hypnosis, you know, what's interesting... This is the other thing we talk a lot about in psychotherapy, right? The difference between content, like an insight, and process. And for me, I think I'm much more interested in process as I learn about psychotherapy and engage in it. Uh, and the process of hypnosis, there's something that I find personally a little bit unsettling about the person, you know, kind of being in a vulnerable state, uh, being hypnotized by somebody who in some ways is directing the experience and, and really telling them where they're going to go with it. Um, for me, for all of psychotherapy, and especially for uh, psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy, it's more powerful when the person, uh, the person being treated is in control. They have the ability to kind of say, this is what's important to me. You know? mm-hmm. So this is where um, you hear a lot of experts in this field talk about and really emphasize that the, the integration therapy should be non-directive, right? Yeah. And... I get that. I, I really do. And, and the, the approach that I use in mindfulness is quite non-directive. But I also think that there are certain, I call them skills or competencies mm. that people will, would really benefit if they learned going into a psychedelic uh, experience and unpacking and making meaning and, and um, mm. sustaining the change afterwards. Mm. So I'm a little bit skeptical about a totally non-directive approach. And I know, you know, there's this sense of like, trust the inner healer. And I actually totally buy that. But um, I wonder if, and maybe it depends on the client, depends on the therapist and all this kind of stuff. But I'm not sure I'm convinced that we should just let people kind of like do the exploration and, and make whatever sense they can of it um, by themselves or just Mm. in conversation, you know? Uh, totally, totally. I think this is a paradox because like, a, you know, totally non-directive psychedelic assisted psychotherapy would look a lot like just kind of random recreational use, which again has its positives, but can also go very badly. Um, I think uh, what you'll find in the, in the literature on it and in a lot of the clinicians' minds is there are certain exceptions to non-directiveness. So one of them is the direction, and it is a direction, to be open and to be curious. So you can't be non-directive about suggesting the importance of non-directiveness. So there's that, that's kind of a paradox, but I think there's a very good rationale for it. So what I would say in general is that I think non-directiveness should, that's what the, that's, that's what the therapy should feel like. That should be the process. Uh, but at the same time, you know, there are certain things that are so important that really it's okay to direct people towards paying attention to that or engaging in that. So I know you and I have talked a lot about the the basics, like behavioral activation, sleeping well, eating well, exercising, getting out of the house. Those things I feel good about saying, look, these are important. Maybe you don't realize quite how important. Here's a little bit of information. And I'd like to find out how we can kind of help you 
you know, not necessarily do the exercise I think is important for you, but engage in something. All right. So day to day right now, you're really involved in ketamine Mm -hmm. and it might not be obvious for some of our listeners how ketamine gets into this conversation. It's not, uh, it doesn't work on the serotonin system. Mm -hmm. It's an anesthetic fundamentally. (laughs) How do we arrive at ketamine assisted psychotherapy? (laughs) This is one of the most weird and wonderful stories. I've ever <laughs> I mean, the, okay, the first thing to know about ketamine, I think, and it's very important for grounding, uh, is that you know the classic label for it is a dissociative anesthetic. This word dissociation pops up all over the place, and you see people get kind of wrapped up in pretzels, saying like, "Oh my God, how can you treat PTSD, which has dissociation as a symptom, with a dissociative drug?" Um, any serious reflection, I think, on what we're actually talking about, the phenomenology of uh, dissociation, what does that mean to different people in different settings, it kind of falls apart, I think. It kind of crumbles in your hands. So I, I hate this word. I'm glad you didn't use it. <laughs> yeah. um, and a uh, historical tidbit is that basically this was a word suggested by the chemist's uh, wife who, who synthesized it after the team didn't like, you know, the, the marketing team didn't like the chemist's original idea, which is to call it something along the lines of dreaming. So even at, even at the very beginning of ketamine's wacky story in the 60s being developed as a derivative of PCP, the word dreaming was what was foremost in center. And when we take when we take dreaming as kind of, if we grounded ourselves in the word dreaming instead of dissociation, we would say like, okay, of course that would be interesting to people interested in psychotherapy. Psychoanalysts hmm. are obsessed with dreams. Hmm. But that's not the way it played out, as you know. <laughs> and instead, uh, ketamine became this dissociative anti- anesthetic uh, used in ER settings, anesthesia, et cetera, where it's very useful. Um, and this is where I think a little bit of discussion of mechanisms is useful um, because ketamine does kind of cut sensorial input to the brain. That's why it reduces pain. That's why at a high dose, you can people become basically, you know, quote unquote, K-hole. They become malleable. Uh, you can replace a, a broken, sorry, a dislocated shoulder with ease. Uh, and that's why it has many uses in medicine. At a medium dose, the same sort of cutting of sensorial input to the brain produces really interesting, really interesting phenomena. So if you go to a sensory deprivation tank, you know, there's no drug involved. Um, you just basically place yourself in an environment where your brain is getting very little sensorial input. And guess what happens? You often hallucinate. You end up in an altered state of consciousness purely from the lack of regular sensorial input. And I would argue that ketamine pharmacologically does something very similar. It reduces sensorial input to the brain and your brain without having the regular, you know, signals that, okay, this is my like, okay, this is, this is the temperature of the world I'm in, et cetera, et cetera, um, starts to scramble its information a little bit in a way that kind of resembles LSD or psilocybin. As in, again, we're seeing kind of a shutdown in the default mode network. We see increased in brain entropy. We see new paths of, of information transmission taking place. And so while, while pharmacologically it's totally different than LSD, uh, doesn't touch serotonin, as you mentioned, um, phenomenologically or, you know, the neural correlates of what's happening, there's actually quite a bit of overlap. That's kind of mind blowing. I don't even know if I have a question for you here, but something is kind of like forming under the surface here around like, what is the psychedelic state if not... 5-HT-2A agonism. Is that like a red herring in terms of understanding? How is it possible that such different brain action can create such similar mind states? 
Great question. And I, the answer is scientifically, we can't really give a comprehensive explanation yet. Um, there's a really fascinating research that just came out on salvia or salvinorin A, the active component of salvia, uh, which again works on a totally different mechanism. This is a mu opioid agonist, uh, and does a little bit of well, does a lot of things that resemble ketamine and uh, the serotonergic hallucinogens to the brain, and that it causes a shutdown of the default mode network, and as a result, hallucinations, uh, altered states of consciousness, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so we, we know a little bit of some of the classic hallmarks of how you know, what we might call psychedelics uh, affect the brain. We don't know all the myriad possibilities of different receptors you could poke and prod to create kind of similar states. We don't know um, if you know, all of these states are equivalently therapeutic. So for example, it might turn out that salvinorin A is useless as, a, as an adjunct to psychotherapy. And that would be a real interesting hypothesis because then we'd be wondering, okay, default mode brain, default mode network shutdown plus psychotherapy is not exactly how these other things must be working. And we would have to really ask, you know, ask ourselves, okay, what are the, the list of necessary and sufficient criteria to produce kind of a meaningful change? I can't resist here to ask you kind of, again, a bit of a geeky question that fits perfectly in here. You know, this classic notion of the brain as a reducing valve. Mm-hmm. Um, earlier in my education, I was working a lot with this hypothesis, the notion that the biggest job of our brains as information processing machines is to eliminate the vast majority of the information available to it at any given time. Totally. And that means being really, really good at highlighting in our environments uh, internal and external, what is relevant in any given moment. Mm. And and that actually changes over time. If you're hungry, mm. the ad that you're seeing on your phone for food will suddenly seem much more salient than mm-hmm. um, if you see it after you eat. So our, our brains are sort of like highlighting or popping different aspects of our environments depending on our sort of motivational states. And then the possibility that psychedelics opening the gates a little bit more being one of the key mechanisms. It seems like it's not only ser- you know, serotonin agonism that does that. It could happen through many other channels. What's your sense of the, how important that mechanism is? I think it's, I think it's kind of everything. I think uh, I totally agree that the brain, in many ways, it exists to make order out of the chaos. Mm-hmm. You know? And a lot of what we perceive uh, to be reality and our consensus on what that might be you know, the classic example being, you know, our reality will look totally different um, just visually or perceptually than a bat's reality, which is based on, you know, echolocation and sound primarily. Yet we're talking about the same matter, the same atoms. It's just perceived totally, totally differently. And a hummingbird, if you watch it make its decisions very, 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 very quickly, you can tell they're not experiencing time the same way we are. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of interesting ways that our brains are you know, creating something that we expect your reality looks similar to my reality, but in many ways, you know, that's probably not the case. And it doesn't mean that whatever we experience, either shared or apart, is true or not true. You know, to push a little further down this rabbit hole, we can cut this out if it ends up not being interesting. But um, one of the things I understand about something simpler uh, that the brain does, like visual perception. Mm. Um, there's this notion of like the controlled hallucination. You, you talked about, you know, the brain's job is to create order out of this chaos. And 
I think it's it's fairly widely understood that you know we could be perceiving like an, an infinite number of things based on the pure light signals we're getting from the environment, mm. but we we simplify dramatically and we end up with objects. Mm. And part of the that process of simplification and creating relevance and resolving this complexity into something manageable for us is actually social, right? Mm. So we collectively map our perceptual environments and objects emerge because of our consensus understanding about what they are. Yeah, yeah. And one of the implications of that is that we don't have the same process for our internal environments, our internal experience. And I think that's very relevant for people suffering from mental illness in a variety of ways because their internal environments can become very unpredictable and really upsetting in various ways. Yeah, yeah. And then psychedelics really amplify that. And it's like, there is an internal environment here that you either don't understand or aren't paying attention to. And then you go through this process of like talking about it with somebody else and creating a map through a consensus with a, th a therapist or whoever's guiding you through the journey. I wonder how that theory lands with you. Oh, I think it's fascinating. Um, one way to frame that is in this classic, uh, you know, uh, phrase that comes from Timothy Leary, but really was seen in the very first psychedelic studies immediately of set and setting. Set being, of course, your mindset, so the internal environment. Setting being, of course, the external environment, the living room you're in, the music you're listening to, etc. And definitely the setting, the external environment is still interpreted by your brain, as you say. And usually we share kind of a similar interpretation of what's going on around us. Uh, the set, sorry, what's going on internally, again, is you're totally on point. I think that really differs dramatically between people. And it's very tough. It's tough to really ever be sure that we understand each other's internal environments. Right. You know? And I think there's evidence everywhere that, in fact, we see the world very differently. And I think that's okay. I think, in fact, evolutionary speaking, uh, socio uh, sociologically speaking, uh, we need people to have very different perspectives because some will have strengths in some cases, others will have strengths in other cases. I think the danger is if, you know, I like this term pathological certainty. Hmm. So when we lose sight that what we're seeing of the world, either the external world or what we're experiencing in our internal world, when we lose sight of the fact that now that is just one interpretation, that is just one way it could be kind of explained. When we lose sight of that, we often end up in a state of too much rigidity, too much hmm. certainty, and that causes suffering. Hmm. I think uncertainty is a beautiful thing. So back, just to add in, back to this idea of what's the therapist's role in integration or in psychedelic-assisted mm -hmm. psychotherapy, mm -hmm. I think psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy is a great idea if you have too much certainty, I think, generally. It's a terrible idea if you don't have enough certainty, if you're just kind of, you have no sense of who you are or you're in a state of psychosis already. Boy, is it not a good idea to take LSD in that case. <laughs> but in the case when there's too much certainty, I think that process of a therapist exploring your mind together, showing you experientially that, oh no, you know, the world is a lot less clear cut than you might think it was. To me, that's a beautiful thing. I think that's very, very therapeutic. Super interesting. Thanks for, for following me down the rabbit hole for a bit there. <laughs> I wonder if we sort of come back to uh, more conventional reality here. I'm curious to hear a little bit more about what your experience is like at the ketamine clinic, at the hospital, who you're treating, uh, what kind of experience you're having, and how, how the whole thing works. Yeah, this is very, this is one of the most interesting stories of my life, uh, the creation of this clinic and seeing how it evolved over time. Um, 
basically, you know, the, the nice thing about ketamine is that uh, there is a very firm biological explanation for why it could be helpful, even in uh, settings where there's no psychotherapy. And we, we've seen this from the original studies, uh, well, the original IV infusion studies around the year 2000, and we've seen it continuing, you know, research over the past 20 years, that the right dose of ketamine in the right person, even in a terrible environment like an academic hospital with noises and beeps, it's sterile, et cetera, even then it can be helpful. So that's one of the big reasons we were able to start working with ketamine because it's kind of forgiving. You know, some people use ketamine in the ER to give it to patients uh, for whatever problem, and it can be somewhat helpful in that setting. If you were to try that with LSD or psilocybin, you would learn within one hour why that's a terrible idea. So that, that kind of uh, forgiving nature of ketamine allowed us to get started without a lot, of, a lot of direction, a lot of firsthand experience. We had some confidence that what we were able to offer, even if it wasn't perfect, uh, was going to be helpful to patients with severe depression. And that's how we started. And then gradually as we went, we had the, the good fortune of you know, having a lot of autonomy and being able to try things out. Like music was not a core component of what we did at first. We incorporated it slowly. We tried it out. Patients experienced treatments with and without music. And we were able to really test, you know, test that dogma that music is essential to the psychedelic experience. Um, and that's something I really loved about that experience is that we've, we've not just music, but with blindfolds, with the treatment room, um, with our approach with patients before and after. It's been a little bit of a playground uh, where we get to see what works and what doesn't. And of course, we're now we're nowhere near the answer. There's no <laughs> one answer, probably. But um, our experience there has been that you know there are certain things that that are crucial, and certain things that are you know maybe a little bit more in the realm of dogma. Care to elaborate? Uh, yeah. So I would say. You know, I, I think therapeutic alliance uh, for any psychedelic treatment, actually, I think it's true for any antidepressant treatment in general, a therapeutic alliance is the core of psychiatry and psychology. That, I think, <clears throat> if you don't have that, you don't have anything. Um, in, terms of, in terms of what is maybe a little bit more in the realm of dogma, um, you know, for example, in the ketamine world, there's a strong emphasis that during the treatment, the patient should be accompanied by someone uh, physically in the same room. And during the time of COVID, that really, that wasn't a safe thing to do anymore. So we were faced with the opportunity or the challenge of saying, okay, is it worth continuing if we have to ask our patients to wear masks uh, and remain in the treatment room with us just outside, um, you know, available as needed, but not physically holding space as one might say. And so we experimented with that. And in fact, we found a lot of patients prefer to be kind of left alone with their experience. Uh, if they have appropriate music, if they feel they trust the team and we're nearby. Um, a lot of them found, you know, for example, they had less of a feeling that they had to manage us, that they had to kind of think about how we looked in their eyes and they could really immerse themselves in their own experience more. I've gotten that feedback from a patient that you and I have worked with. So uh, mm -hmm. I, I've, I've heard that and it really makes sense. It does. It makes sense. And, you know, one could argue the contrary. One could say, okay, you're colluding with the defense. You know, the, the person not wanting to be seen, you know, you, you probably wouldn't accept that in psychotherapy. Psychotherapy is a lot about a radical encounter with the other, about being seen in a, in a profound way. So are you only treating depression at the ketamine clinic? There we only treat uh, depression and really only amongst the most severe cases uh, mm -hmm. around. 
Um, that's the state of the yard, uh, the state of affairs, I should say, with ketamine in Quebec. It is by no means a you know conventional treatment. It is by no means accessible to everybody. And what proportion of your patients are getting psycho, uh, psychotherapy? So that's that's another thing we we evolved uh, towards kind of confirming, let's say, the consensus. Uh, for us, it is uh, essentially mandatory. So basically, hundred percent. Okay, and. I wonder what kind of results you're seeing with your project, like the clinical work that you're doing in the context of that research project and how it sort of measures up to what you know in the literature. Mm. That's, it's very interesting. So we are in some ways, I think very good scientists. And I think in other ways, terrible scientists, because we always have put uh, clinical, you know, clinical effectiveness as the top priority. So one of the things that we do, for example, um, is I do love behavioral activation. And when we talk to patients before the treatment, our preparation is maybe a little bit less uh, spiritual uh, or say metaphysical. Our preparation is very concrete. And we'll often say, look, we want you to do the following medication changes because they're necessary to to ensure optimal success for ketamine. Uh, We'll want you to improve your sleep. We'll want you to start in psychotherapy. We'll want you to eat better, et cetera, before we even treat them. And so... By the time they often show up on our door for their first treatment, um, a lot of patients are feeling significantly better already. So this is this is terrible for science. You know, if you're going to enroll a clinical trial, if you're going to enroll somebody in a clinical trial and they show up sometimes already remitted, you, and in the science world, you would then exclude them from their clinic, your clinical trial because they're not severely depressed enough. Um, clinically, I think this is a brilliant thing to do because you know if that stuff is, benefits you, great. In fact. That's the kind of stuff, the behavioral stuff, that will keep you well in the long term. Ketamine will not keep you well in the long term. So all that to say is it's very difficult to compare our results to the uh, results in the literature. Mm-hmm. Um, I think our overall clinical success is, uh, is excellent uh, in terms of you know, goals that might not be just removing depressive symptoms, but also helping people wean themselves off benzodiazepines. Um, I think we have some very exciting results in that regard. Hmm. And I think the tolerability of our treatment is uh, dramatically better than what we see in the literature. Hmm. So, so we don't, we, we've never had anybody need vomit. Uh, nausea is often very, very quick and self-limited, um, very minor. Uh, in changes in blood pressure, we think we have ways of kind of mitigating that psychologically. And we've actually, I think, seen that and that you can actually change uh, someone's blood pressure reaction to ketamine dramatically with the psychological factors. Hmm. So those things are much easier to compare to what's in the literature, and uh, I think we do pretty damn well. So I understand you guys do IV infusions. I wonder if you can speak to your process there, like uh, dose and what kind of monitoring you do, and then your impression of other delivery mechanisms, whether it's intramuscular or intranasal and this kind of stuff. Mm. Yeah. So we work with IV for the simple reason that that is what has the most evidence. Um, In terms of pharmacokinetics, as in how a drug is absorbed, uh, distributed throughout the body, metabolized, excreted, how long that all takes, et cetera, uh, there's not really a big advantage for IV versus everything else, except that you can turn off the pump in theory. So if you did have a blood pressure spike through the roof, you turn off the pump and the, the, the molecule ketamine is cleared from your body relatively quickly. And so that's kind of a, it's like a safety release uh, that, that is reassuring to have. So if we compare IV to intramuscular subcutaneous, in theory, the results would be pretty similar because the actual time uh, 
the, the drug splenin spends in your blood is going to be quite similar. And pragmatically, it'd be a lot easier to use. We simply don't because uh, we basically are using the mode of delivery that has the most evidence, the best record of safety. Um, intranasal is its own kettle of fish, intranasal and uh, by mouth. These things take uh, longer to act and longer to leave your body. And even if you try sublingual to try to bypass, uh, you know, first, basically, yeah, increase absorption rate, um, a lot of that is going to end up being absorbed from your stomach, just from dripping down your throat. And so those, those forms of delivery, if you wanted to have a dose that would give a very powerful psychedelic experience, it, people would still remain under the drug effects for hours, hours and hours, like four to eight hours to some extent, where the IV or intramuscular or subcutaneous, by the time uh, you administer the drug, so two hours after you've administered the drug, people are more or less drug free. So that's a big advantage because it allows you to use higher doses, have a more acute, uh, dramatic drug effect, and get back to sobriety so that you're not totally, you know, spaced out for the next day. So you alluded a little bit to the sort of regulatory landscape here. There are many, many ketamine clinics opening up primarily in the U.S. that use this uh, intramuscular or intravenous approach. Locally here, it's a little trickier, let's say in Canada even, to set that up outside of a hospital setting. And so private clinics are steering away from that approach, even though it has many advantages. Also has a lot of overhead because mm -hmm. you need an IV and you need more professionals yeah. around. Yeah, yeah. As you know, we're launching shortly our ketamine clinic at Mindspace. Yeah. I wonder the disadvantages notwithstanding, what do you think people can expect from an intranasal or a sublingual dose of a ketamine done in the context of a psychotherapy? That's very interesting. That's very interesting. So one thing is that if you are willing to tolerate a longer session, so keep in mind that ketamine, you know, IV, intramuscular, whatever, is usually one or two hours. Psilocybin um, is about eight hours of psychotherapy. LSD is about 12 hours of psychotherapy. MDMA is somewhere in the middle. Um, so there's no real you know, rule that it should be this long or that long. So the sublingual or oral routes, um, if you want to have a powerful experience, by the time the drug wears off, it's going to look a lot more like four hours or six hours, you know, like psilocybin. Um, and that has all sorts of advantages and some disadvantages. I think um, the effects then, if you wanted to have a shorter experience, like say two hours, um, the effects pharmacokinetically just will not be as powerful as something you can get with IM or subcutaneous, but that also has advantages and disadvantages. You know, there's, it's not true that, you know, the highest dose possible is the best. I think in some ways, the, the higher your dose, the further you, you separate from the consensus reality and the more, you know, in a sense you could explore maybe deeper areas of your mind or whatever. But the harder it might be also to make links then between your daily life. So the, the sublingual or the oral uh, routes or lower dosing by IV or IM, there might be less powerful phenomenology, yet uh, the experience you do have, which can be profoundly, profoundly uh, different from your, your waking life, might be easier to integrate with the rest of your life. So this is um, what some people call the psycholytic model? Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. Now, what about the risks and potential side effects using ketamine, both in the psychedelic dose and the psycholytic dose? Mm. Absolutely. Yeah. I think um, 
the most important known risks are mostly from studies of people who use ketamine chronically, uh, often, you know, often on the street. And those risks can be devastating. You can have a, a bladder that becomes fibrotic, so it doesn't function anymore. Um, and that's seen with people who abuse it, usually taking doses, say, 100 times what we might use clinically uh, for long periods of time. There are uh, other, other potential long-term consequences of abusing ketamine, like cognitive issues. Um, but not much of that has ever been seen in clinical trials. And Janssen's uh, study on S-ketamine, or Spravato, uh, demonstrated remarkable safety over one to two years. There weren't any cognitive deficits developing, very, very little in the way of uh, bladder problems compared to placebo. So, you know, pharmaceutical-grade ketamine and an appropriate dose, uh, the things that have been studied, uh, seem to be extremely safe. Um, there are short-term problems with it. Of course, you can have a quick uh, rise in blood pressure, and that's dose-dependent to some extent. So if you've had a recent stroke where your brain bled, uh, bad idea to take ketamine. I wouldn't recommend it. Um, and then I think a lot of the other risks are mostly the ones that, that preoccupy me the most are the psychological risks. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we talk about spiritual bypassing, this idea that uh, you can kind of retreat into spiritual explanations that or spiritual theorizing that allow you to not really deal with your problems or your behavior or whatever it is. Um, I think there's a risk that there's kind of psychedelic bypassing in the sense that, you know, if you get into the model that, okay, the treatment, the thing that helps me is the drug, I think that sets you up for always looking for external solutions to internal problems. Mm -hmm. And that means addictions, whether it's to, whether it's to entertainment, uh, distraction, food, cocaine, whatever it is, I think I'm always wary of this thought process of this external thing is going to fix this internal problem. Right. right. And so good, good psychedelic assisted psychotherapy is not at all about that. When it's done right, I think, it's very much the emphasis on you're going to fix your problem, my friend. This molecule might help you get there, and we are here to support you through that voyage. Mm -hmm. And to me, that doesn't lead to these this, these ideas later that uh, that you know the drug itself you need to find it on the street and take it every day and whatever to get through the rest of your mm -hmm. life. Mm -hmm. I'm glad you mentioned Spravato because uh, a I wanted to make sure we talked about it, and b I know you have strong, some strong opinions about it, which you may or may not be comfortable sharing here. But what is Spravato, and why is it kind of a big deal? So Spravato is essentially it's ketamine. Uh, chemically, it's the one of the mirror images of the ketamine molecule uh, called an enantiomer. If you don't know what that is, it doesn't really matter, I think, because for real, it's really it's very similar to straight up ketamine that's been used in medicine for forty years. Um, it's packaged in a in a very expensive nasal delivery device, and really it's this packaging, this delivery mechanism that won the, the intellectual property that allowed Janssen to fund the studies to bring this to market. And what they've done is they've said, look, IV ketamine, very interesting, but who wants to go into a clinic and get your IV infusion twice a week or once a week for the rest of your life? Wouldn't it be easier to go into a clinic and get Spravato in your nose once a week or twice a week for the rest of your life? Uh, and the studies seem to say that this kind of works compared to placebo in your nose. Um, there are no studies comparing Spravato to S, sorry, to intravenous ketamine. It's never been done. Um, all the studies that have compared S-ketamine to regular ketamine have shown really no significant differences. Um, the big difference, I think, is essentially, you know, 
in IV ketamine, when it's done right, again, I really think the emphasis should be on this is a catalyst towards change, towards psychotherapy. It's a brief course, and you're going to keep yourself well with X, Y, and Z after that. So the emphasis is on the patient's autonomy. Whereas Spravato, in many ways, kind of replicates, I think, um, the model of antidepressants that I, I hope we kind of move past from, that you have a neurological deficit that we shall correct with this drug. You need this the way a diabetic needs their insulin. So we got a training from Janssen on Spravato, and they claim that using S-ketamine, right, that enantiomer, uh, has an advantage, which is that it binds better with the glutamate receptor than racemic ketamine. And I actually asked the, the scientist there to send me their, their research papers, which she did, and um, it was a little uh, intimidating, so I haven't really gotten into it, but what do you make of that claim? What I would say is uh, the brilliant scientists, and I really, I do respect their brilliance. I worked with some of them during my master's uh, who work at pharmaceutical companies doing drug development. Um, the ones who are responsible for arguments like that also believe that the core piece of ketamine was NMDA antagonism. So as you said, one of the glutamate, uh, well, one of the receptors related to glutamate, that this, this pharmacological feature was sort of the essential bit of ketamine's therapeutic mechanism. And if we replicate it with other drugs, we might be able to have the same benefits without the dissociation or whatnot. Um, the science is very impressive. Uh, you can look at binding affinities. You can look at enzyme modeling. There's a lot of interesting stuff. Um, it doesn't work. Uh, it doesn't work that the NMDA antagonism from molecules outside of ketamine to date uh, treat depression. And, you know, pharmaceutical companies have lost maybe half a billion dollars on pursuing that line of research. So what I would say is that although there are excellent laboratory studies, uh, enzyme studies, animal studies that kind of maybe support a difference between S-ketamine and R-ketamine, uh, this is brought to you by the same sort of process that lost half a billion dollars saying we know how this works and we can show, you know, that we can create something along the same lines. So all that to say is I think there is um, an ocean of knowledge between what you can test in, uh, say, binding affinities and what actually helps a human being. Mm -hmm. huh. And I don't think they're so good at uh, navigating this ocean. Interesting. All right. Well, I'm, I'm mindful of the time. We've I've taken up a huge amount of your time so far today. I wonder if there's anything that we didn't cover that you think is important to add to this conversation. You know, I think every time I, I speak uh, publicly about these things, I think it's important to convey the message that um, psychedelic assisted psychotherapy works uh, seemingly very well within very specific contexts. And it's tempting for a lot of people to pursue you know, black market purchases of psychedelics or whatever substances and try to recreate that uh, homebrew in their basement uh, with their friends, uh, wherever. Um, I would highly, highly discourage this practice uh, because I think there are lots of potential harms that are intrinsic to the environment being different. Um, but a key thing that a lot of people really don't understand until they've worked in psychotherapy or psychology is that the frame this specific relationship you have with the therapist that is usually unlike any relationship you have in your life is extremely important. The boundaries of that frame, you know, the weird things where your therapist says, oh, we're out of time, time for you to go, instead of you know, the way we normally say goodbye to our friends. It's, it's unique and it's powerful. And without delving into all the mechanisms behind that, I would suggest that there's a risk in putting too much importance on the drug and too much importance 
on, you know, maybe just the living room like setting and not enough importance on the, the relationship you have with a the therapist. And so all that to say is don't do this at home. That's my, that's my strong recommendation. <laughs> We're not there yet. We don't know what will make for a good experience or a trip to the ER. It's really interesting in the field of psychology and psychotherapy that people are for good reason, really interested in this field. And there are more and more people getting educated about how to support people that are using psychedelics. Totally. And so this is, it's happening pretty fast now. And I think there are more and more really good professionals that are getting educated on how to help clients in this context. So uh, it's really cool. It's a really interesting moment. And there's some, some cool things coming down the pipeline, hopefully. Yeah. I mean, you and Mindspace are doing amazing work on that front. And so to all the people who are, <laughs> all the listeners who are, who are considering, you know, pursuing black market or psychotherapies, psychedelics, psychotherapy, et cetera, I'd say, you know, we're not, we're not far away from these things becoming accessible and, uh, and safe and a little patience. At this point, we've waited 40 years for this. <laughs> a few more months or maybe a year or two, I think is well worth the wait to get something that is very potentially helpful rather than something that could be quite dangerous. Cool. So Kyle, is there some way that people can follow you or keep in touch with you? Are you on social media or did you write a book or something? Like how do people <laughs> keep up with you? They cannot. <laughs> <laughs> right. I intentionally stay low key. Great. That's, that's gonna be really, really good for promoting this episode, Kyle. Thanks a lot. <laughs> <laughs> You're welcome, Joe. I mean, they can follow Mindspace. You can refer emails, but even, uh, I don't know. I have to say I'm, I'm pulled in so many directions these days that uh, I, I fight hard to keep <laughs> keep some time and some brain power for myself. So unless you uh, show up at Kyle's clinic and need some ketamine, this is the last you'll hear of him for some time. But uh, mm -hmm. all joking aside, Kyle, really, really fun to talk to you and I'm not surprised. It was very stimulating and, and really interesting. So thanks so much for taking the time and I uh, hope we can do it again sometime. Thank you for having me, Joe. It's, uh, it's always a pleasure to speak with you. And yeah, absolutely. Let's do it again. All right. Sounds good. Take care, Kyle. Bye, Joe. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Mindspace podcast. I hope it was inspiring. If you feel the world could use a little more Mindspace, please consider supporting the podcast. The best way to do that is to leave a review on the Apple podcast app or wherever you listen or share your favorite episode on social media. Thanks and be well.